Hello and welcome to or welcome back to a runner's life podcast. I'm the host Marcus Brown. I've gone from a 455 marathon down to running a sub three hour marathon. The idea of this podcast is to explore what a runner's life is by speaking to runners and experts to learn from their experiences and to expand on our own boundaries of what a runner's life could represent. If you want to get updates on the podcast or want to see what I'm up to, follow me on Instagram at a runner's life underscore podcast and at the marathon Marcus, all one word. If you find value in the show, please subscribe and share it with your community and leave a rating on your podcast platform that you use as it helps the podcast grow. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash a runner's life. Thank you for tuning in. Now let's head to the conversation. Today's guest is an athlete and a coach who has a passion to help others see what's possible for themselves. He is a writer and a podcast host of The Morning Shakeout, which he started in December 2017. I'm a fan of the deeper conversations that I had on his podcast, including episode 129 of Killing Janae. It went beyond running to show another side of him that people can really relate to. I'm grateful to have also spoke to him in episode 125, and you asked some great questions that I've not been asked before, and your podcast is one of the inspirations for my podcast. Mario, welcome to A Runner's Life Podcast. Marcus, that means so much to me. It's a pleasure to speak with you again. It's the same for me. I've been really sort of chewing over some of the thoughts following our conversation and the insights that were shared. So, and as I've sort of said, I've really enjoyed the recent conversation post-marathon and I've actually actually had to listen to it again because I think there's so much into it that you kind of can miss the first time around. Sure. It was such an open and powerful conversation and obviously there's a trust between the two of you which made it really work. I mean, what were your sort of takeaways from that particular episode? With Killian, you're talking about. Um, I wanted to have a conversation with him that dug deeper into his background as an athlete and a person. And I wanted to try and understand how his motivations, how his relationship to competition and to risk specifically have evolved over the course of his competitive career. I think about Killian, he's been on the top level of sport now for seeming, I mean, seemingly forever. And I've been involved in endurance sports myself for, for 23 years and it hasn't been quite that long, but it seems like he's been at the top of the game for a long time and he has, and he's still so young, he's 32 and so you would think like, oh, here's a guy who's, you know, who's been around forever. He's much older. Um, he has a lot of insight, which he which he does. But he's only 32 years old. And he's at this point of his career where he's essentially done everything as a competitive athlete. He's won world championships. He's won some of the biggest ultra and mountain races in the world. He has set fastest known times up and down, you know, countless mountains. And I was really interested in like, how do you stay, not just how do you stay motivated once you've, you've done all that, but what keeps, yeah, what keeps you going and how do those motivations evolve as you've checked all of these things off of your list? And then 
rewinding the clock a bit, like going back to his youth before people knew who Killian Jornet was, before he won UTMB or Western States in his early 20s or won his first world titles in ski mountaineering. Like, what was what was he like? What was his relationship to sport like? What was his relationship to competition like? What were the seeds that were planted before we knew who he was that have sprouted into this this giant oak tree that we know today? Listening to him speaking kind of reminded me of a different podcast with the rugby player Johnny Wilkinson on the High Performance Podcast. Mm -hmm. And he was looking back at himself in his playing days compared to what he's like now. And it's completely different, well, completely different perspectives. And it really sort of showed that he he really had this grit, determination, obsessive, some may say. But that's what was required to be the best. And listening to... Killian also reminded me of that. It was almost like Johnny back in the winning his playing days. And that's what you need almost to be at that level. I mean, I say it like I, I can relate, but it, when I listen to both of the, those, those, those men speaking, it kind of, there's definitely parallels between what's required to be what he's, he's doing and what he's done. Right. And it's so deep and it's so complex and it's so nuanced that you're not going to find that in an article it's even really hard for it to come out in most conversations. And I still think there's a lot there that I was not able to uncover. I only had an hour of his time and I'd love to spend a few more hours and try to dig even, even deeper with him. But I mean, you're, you're exactly right. There's just so much there that has, has shaped who he is today. And it was really interesting for me to hear him describe you know what he was like as a kid and what his approach was to sport and just how that's how that's evolved over time because I think a lot of people look at someone like Killian they say oh I'd love to do that like you know I'd love to be that good of an athlete or I'd love to do you know those sort of things or have that kind of success like what's the one or two or three things that Killian does that's allowed him to do that and the truth is it's not one or two or or three things like this is this is his entire life's work and I think I was able to get into some of that over the course of our hour long conversation, but there's just, there's just so much there. And it's like all the things that he's accomplished throughout the course of his career and will continue to accomplish from, from here on out. It's not necessarily one or two or three things that he does on a regular basis. It's a, it's the sum of the experiences that he's had over his entire life. The things that he's learned that have informed his perspective and have helped his, his perspective develop over time. Yeah, and I really loved like the way you went into that and just explored that sort of idea of his mindset. And I think it's probably questions that people have had and wanted to ask him as well. But I also really liked the fact that he was open, especially when he talked about his the passing of his friend and how he struggled afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was really, um, you know, strong and brave of him. Not brave in a patronizing way, but do you know what I mean? Because you, sometimes you can just, sometimes with athletes, they can sort of put on a persona and just, give you a stock answer and just not go into that sort of level so I thought it was really uh, just an amazing thing for him to talk about and so other people can relate to that as well yeah I appreciated that he was open to talking about what things were like for him after that accident his friend Stefan essentially fell off of the mountain uh on on Mont Blanc while they were out on I I don't think it was his actual um 
summits of my life expedition on the mountain. I think it was it was sort of a recon type of thing, but I mean it was someone he was really close to, and they were both walking around uh, along the the same trail, and the ground gave out from under him, and he and he fell to his death. and And I could completely understand if that brought up enough negative emotions that he wouldn't want to talk about it but he was he was very open to describing the pain that he felt afterward and how long it took him to get back into the mountains i thought that was really interesting too i i was i was wondering if after something like that he wanted to stay away from the mountains for a while maybe because it just brought up these negative emotions for him or maybe he was fearful and he said no he said that's actually where i I, I wanted to get back and I think he did like three days later, he didn't go back to the same spot, but he went back into the mountains because that was where he felt the most comfortable and the most at peace. And it helped him process this really traumatic experience. And I need to go back and listen to it myself because when I'm in the moment of a conversation like that, I'm just, you know, really consumed with, with what he's saying. And I've actually written it down in my notebook that I need to go back and, and listen to the conversation. I had that part of it marked specifically because I, I remember just being so enthralled as he was describing it. But at the same time, if this, if this makes sense, I, I, I wasn't, I was paying attention, but it wasn't really processing. Um, but it's still really, you know, really, really powerful. And he was really articulate in being able to just describe the impact that that event had on him in the moment and you know since I could relate to what you're saying because on one hand when you're asking the questions you're listening to what they're saying mm-hmm. and you're processing it but then you're thinking about the future as well so you're kind of in different spaces of the time the present the past or the future <laughs> yeah you have to as an interviewer or as a host of a podcast, be attentive and listen. I do believe that is the host's number one job. And as you're doing that, you're also thinking ahead because he's going to finish answering the question and then you've got to have one ready for him uh, to, you know, to go. So, you know, when you're, when you're in that, when you're in that space, it's really hard to fully comprehend the magnitude of, of something like that in the moment. And you've got to go back afterward and really listen to it with a different set of ears at that point. I agree. And I've had a couple of interviews that I've done and I listen back and I think, ah, do you know what I mean? You think, oh, I could have maybe gone down this way, but you're sort of in the moment thinking about what they're saying. And then the next question was when you're listening to it afterwards, you can think, okay, well, maybe I would have gone down this way or explored it further. But that's just life, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, in conversation, whether it's for a podcast or just with your spouse or someone in your family or your best friend, you want to be engaged in it. And if you're engaged in it and you're thinking what are we going to talk about or how am I going to articulate this? You can't really fully absorb all of it. And oftentimes after I get off of a podcast or I finish up a conversation with my wife, I'll have to sit there and just take some time to process what just happened. What did we just talk about? What impact does it, does it have on me? And I felt very much like that after getting off with Killian, because by the time that hour long conversation was over, I was exhausted because I was so engaged mentally and I had to be on my toes to answer, listen to him and then answer the next question. I didn't really have time to dwell on any one of his answers in the moment. Yeah, that, I understand what you mean. Uh, 
I think we've spoken enough about Killian and I don't want to give too much away because I want people to actually listen to the conversation. So moving on, in your newsletter, you know, you do sort of share, you know, thoughts, quotes, things like that, that sort of resonate with you. Is there any particular quote or saying at this particular moment that's speaking to you more so? Interestingly, along the lines of what we were just talking about, and I shared this quote maybe a week or two ago, um, but the quote is by Simone Wheel, and she she says, um, attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. And I was actually thinking about that when I was out running this morning and just really trying to pick apart that short quote because it, it's really profound. And if you think about it, attention, whether it's you listening to me in this conversation or you're paying attention to something that's happening in the world, if you are listening to someone else explain troubles that they're going through in their life, I mean, you're you're giving someone your your attention. That is one of the, the greatest gifts. That's extremely generous. And I never really thought of it in that way. I never really thought of of attention or giving attention to someone or something as a form of generosity, but our most valuable asset is, is time. And we can only, or we should only be giving it to one thing at, at one time, but we're, you know, we're always uh, doing a million different things at once. But if you're really giving someone or something attention, that is such a generous gift because that means you're not giving that time or attention to someone or something else in that moment. And, as someone who I give things attention, but I, I also receive attention and I've tried to like in a moment like this, like you are, you are giving me your attention. You're not with your kids right now. You're not doing work. You're not out running. I'm, I'm grateful for that. I mean, that's a really generous offering on, you know, on your side. So that's the, the quote, the one quote in particular that I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I shared that, I don't know, it was maybe like two, three, four weeks ago, uh, but it was fresh on my mind this morning. And I think relevant to the things we were just talking about now. Do you know, I was recording an intro for my podcast and I was going to, I think on the outro possibly, and I was going to say something along the lines of thank you for your time, because, you know, you could be anywhere else, but you're listening to me. You're and that kind of relates to what you're saying because it's so true. You just got to respect one other people's time. But then, especially like say whether you're a parent or your your partner, you know, giving your time and being attentive is showing them respect and it is generous because sometimes it can be quite hard. I'm almost making it sound like an excuse here to be fully present sometimes when you're with someone because you're in that moment. But then you're potentially thinking about something that's going to happen down the line, especially as a parent, for example. Yeah, it, it really is, especially this day and age when we have myriad distractions in all aspects of our lives. And there's always multiple things going on, but we decide where we're going to give our attention to. And sometimes you are giving it to a few different things at once and you don't have a choice because you're juggling a lot of balls. But when you have those opportunities to really be fully engaged with something, and this is a topic that I have been thinking thinking a lot more about recently in terms of my work, what I do with the morning shakeout. When I write this newsletter, I put out this podcast because if someone's reading my newsletter that comes out every Tuesday and it doesn't take very long or it shouldn't take very long when you go through it, 10, 15 minutes or so, if you're not clicking around the links, you're 
probably not doing, maybe you are doing something else during that time, but I want to be respectful of that person's time. Like, Hey, if you're going to open this up and you're going to read it, I want to make it worth your while because that's 15 minutes that you could be spending doing something else. Or if someone takes an hour to an hour and a half, two hours, listen to my podcast, that's, I mean, an hour two hours that they're not doing something else. Maybe they're running. Uh, maybe they are commuting to work or out for a walk, something like that. I mean, podcasts are great because they are, you know, passive in that, in that way, but they're not listening to someone else's show. Uh, they're not listening to a friend. They're not on the phone talking to someone, not saying they shouldn't be doing those things, but they've decided to give me their, their attention. And that's a really generous thing. And it's something that I am just trying to be, more respectful of not just in the work avenue of my life but all these different areas as well and just going back to the idea of uh, attention and distraction one thing that you spoke about recently in um, the newsletter was the social dilemma Mm -hmm. and you know social media and i'm aware of it myself being on social media can be good but at the same same time it does cause a degree of distraction because your attention is taken away from other areas of your life um i mean our phones are designed to keep us on there and still take our time i mean what were your sort of thoughts after watching that documentary and like what sort of changes have you made so watching the documentary not much of it caught me by surprise i had heard most of the argument that they were presenting in other places. A lot of the characters involved, Tristan Harris, uh, Jaron Lanier specifically, I've listened to on on other podcasts, and Cal Newport is someone who wasn't featured in The Social Dilemma, but I've read his book, Digital Minimalism. He's someone who doesn't use social media and writes quite a bit about the dangers of it. I, I knew all of I knew all of these things. So as I'm watching the film, it's just reinforcing all of these things that I knew. And in my life up to that point, I had struggled at times with my own relationship to social media. It was very distracting, time consuming, but it also was messing with my head and my emotions, if I'm being frank. And I I knew all of this and I tried all of these different things before I watched the film, whether it would be, you know, taking social media sabbaticals a couple times a year where I wouldn't use Instagram or Twitter or Facebook for a week or two at a time, taking the apps off of my devices, shutting off the notifications, uh, all of those, those sorts of things. And for me, taking those steps wasn't enough. I was still addicted to these platforms. I couldn't get enough of them, whether it was posting something myself, seeing how one of my posts did, seeing what I may have missed from a friend or a professional athlete, or maybe someone else in the same space that, you know, that I work in. It just became really all consuming to the point where I could be doing other things and I would be not even looking at my screen, but distracted by what I might be missing on social media. And I took a drastic step in the days after watching the social dilemma and I deleted my Instagram account where I had 12.2,000 followers. I deleted my Twitter, which was 16,000 followers. I deleted my Facebook, which I hadn't been using much at all in, in recent years, but got rid of that 
too, because I realized that I was addicted to these platforms. I had data from my devices telling me how much time I spent on them, and it's embarrassing uh, how much time I was spending on these these platforms. I had gotten to the end of Instagram, meaning scrolling the feed and having it tell me I was all caught up. I'd seen everyone's posts that had put something up more times than I care to admit. And because I had tried all of these other things to try and curb my usage, I, I knew that I was incapable of doing that. Um, very much like someone who is addicted to substances, they can't just have a little bit. It's either they're not having any of it at all, or they're going to have as much of it as they can take before they fall into a stupor. And I was definitely in, in a stupor and I needed to pull myself out of it. So I took the drastic step of deleting all of my personal social media accounts, cold turkey. I went boom, 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 one, two, three. They were gone in a matter of minutes. And it was simultaneously one of the scariest yet most freeing things that I've ever done. I mean, they're designed to keep us addicted to them, to, to keep our time and attention. So Yeah, and they're very good at it. <laughs> yeah, they are. And I can imagine, like you say, like, there's that sort of fear on one hand you're thinking well it's part of my profile that I'm online so am I going to lose something from that but then on the other side you're just like well it's not doing my mental health any good mm -hmm. by doing this I mean once you removed it and say like after say like a week or so I mean how did you feel from that initial feeling of cutting off to maybe like a week later so in that first week I had multiple moments where I would find myself sitting at my desk or on the couch downstairs at my house where I was at a loss. I would have my phone in my hand or, or my iPad, and it became immediately clear to me just how almost instinctual it was for me to pick up these devices and to quickly scroll my feed. Um, and there was nothing there to scroll. And I was almost at a loss. Like, what do I, what do I do with my time? There's nothing here to look at. I mean, sure. I could have you know, gone to a website or open some other app, but I've, I've even stripped those devices down of most of the fun things that, that are on there. So at first I was, I was at a loss. I also had multiple moments throughout the day where I would be working on something or out running or in conversation with someone. And I'd be, I'd be distracted by social media where I didn't exist. And I wasn't looking at my feed per se, but I was wondering what I was missing. And I think that was probably the biggest thing and, and still is to some degree, almost three weeks removed now, is this is this fear of missing out because I don't exist in these places anymore. I'm missing out on whatever is going on there. And there's some good stuff that happens on social media. It's not all bad for me. And this is very much an end of one. It was doing me more harm than good, and I needed to make a change. And I know there are other people, because I've heard from them in the last few weeks, who are in a similar spot, but I know others as well, my wife being one of them, who has a much healthier relationship with these platforms, and they can coexist. Uh, I just, I couldn't. But I, I had, and still to some degree, have this this fear of, of what I'm missing, whether it's breaking news, whether it's someone announcing... I don't know, the birth of their child or they ran some virtual race recently and shattered, uh, I don't know, three hours in the marathon uh, since you just did that recently yourself. I mean, whatever it, it could be, like, I feel like I'm, I'm missing out on on something. And that's been that's been the trickiest part to to navigate here in the first three weeks that I've, I've been removed. I've had less moments 
in recent days where I've been sitting there wondering what I'm going to do with my time. Uh, but I still catch myself from time to time wondering what I might be missing on Twitter or Instagram specifically. But I guess those moments kind of spread out uh, as time goes on, really. And I guess it goes to the question of, although there's a community online, it's like, how do you redefine what your community looks like? Because we mm -hmm. need that connection with people. So you yeah. need to replace it with something else. Yeah, I feel really fortunate that I have a lot of great relationships in my life. Some of them were initiated through these platforms and have since transcended that. But I've got friends that I've had for 20, 25 years at this point, people that I've met through my local community that I may follow what they do online, but we have a relationship that is off Instagram or off Twitter, quote unquote. And what I have been reminded of recently is that those relationships that really matter or the ones that you want to matter, they take work. And the thing about social media, whether it's Instagram or Twitter, or a lot of people keep up with their friends and family on Facebook, it's not that much work. It doesn't take any effort at all to scroll through a feed and see an update and give someone a little like or leave a quick comment. But those things are very fleeting. Uh, and there's a lot of people who are you know, potentially chiming in on, on any one thing. And I've been reminded recently that meaningful relationships take a lot of work. It takes effort to reach out to someone and talk to them on the phone or I mean, even just, you know, texting people directly versus and asking them how they're doing versus just seeing what they've updated on their Instagram profile that week. And I think that's been a healthy reminder for me because I took for granted the the strength of of real relationships and the amount of work that goes into keeping them going for a, a prolonged period of time and and it's been interesting navigating that over over the last few weeks it's definitely taken taken a lot more work on my you know on on my side of things to to initiate conversation to keep them going um to check in with people from time to time because i, I can't do it very quickly and and conveniently and what you learn when you do that is that you can't have that many close relationships right i mean i could have tens of thousands of followers on Instagram and I can follow 500 people or, or a thousand people and feel like I know them and feel like I am supporting them. But it's truthfully very, very superficial. If you're going to have very deep relationships, you can't have that many of them because they take a lot of work. And you're obviously trying to maintain those amidst everything else that you've got going on in your life. And they're only 24 hours in a day. So, I mean, that's been a, I, I knew this, like I, I, I knew this, that relationships that are meaningful take a lot of work, but I've been reminded of it and taken that less for granted over the last few weeks that I have not been on social media. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. And it really goes back to the quote that you mentioned at the start of this conversation. Mm -hmm. And I'm also thinking about, you know, the reports of relationship with other people, but crucially the relationship with ourselves is also so important. Yeah. And for me, my mind was just so occupied with with so many things and a lot of it being what was happening on social media or how were my posts doing on social media? Were people finding my, you know, my stuff and clicking through to listen to a pod, whatever it would be. I mean, there'd be a, you know, there'd be a million different things that that would be going on through my head. And 
and when I'm occupied with that sort of stuff, I'm not really taking care of myself. And I, I thought I was taking care of myself because if I would scroll through, say, Instagram and a post that I put up got a lot of likes, I get a dopamine hit from that and you feel good temporarily. And then you're going back to try and get that again and again and again. That's how these these platforms are are designed. But you're not really taking care of yourself when you're doing that. It's just it's a really cheap high, really. Um, and not having that right now, there's definitely been a bit of a withdrawal period. But the work that I've had to do on myself through journaling, through being in my own head, which I'm generally comfortable with um, on a, you know, on a daily basis, but I've had to, I've had to create that space for myself where I'm not going to get, I, I know I'm not going to get that instant dopamine hit from, you know, a, a like or a comment or someone sharing my stuff, but I've, I've learned to just be content with what I've got and where I am and have that confidence that when I do put something out into the world, I don't have to follow up on it immediately to see, how well it was reacted to or how widely it was shared or commented on any of that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I can yeah, relate to that. I mean, like listening to what you're saying, the feelings that I felt, especially about with social media as well. I think although you might have a certain amount of followers, you can't be, there's only a certain amount of attention that you can give to everyone equally. And I think sometimes mm -hmm. for me, I try and, almost people please and that you know doesn't always work so you, you end up spending yourself too thin so yeah um yeah listen to what you're saying i think the relationship with other people meaningful relationships and the relationship yourself is so crucial especially during this year but um no thank you for sort of sharing those thoughts anyways yeah and the the last bit like on a very fundamental level i realized that if i'm giving a good chunk of my attention to these platforms and people on these platforms. And they're great people on the platforms. And I'm not giving that attention to myself or focusing on the things that I really need to put my energy into. I'm not giving the people in my life who are closest to me, who do matter most, the attention that they deserve. And I think based on a lot of the feedback I've gotten the last few weeks, there are a lot of other people who are struggling with, with a similar thing. And Back to the the Simone Whale quote, like, you know, attention is a form of, of generosity. So it's just developing the the self-awareness to be more mindful about where your attention is going at any given moment of the day. And in order to do that, you've got to slow things down and be a little bit more methodical and be a little bit more deliberate, which is antithetical to this fast paced world that we live in. And that social media, which rewards, you know, instant gratification and engagement, uh, is, is really all about. Yeah, totally agree with that. And just, uh, shifting to running and I'm not quite sure whether you saw the recent London marathon called the elites only. Um, I did. And I want to focus on the women's race. Mm -hmm. So for me, you know, Bridget Koskai is just an exceptional athlete. You know, she ran like, you know, I mean, she she won like two, three minutes ahead of like second, third place. But for me, it kind of almost reminded me a little bit of watching the Olympic uh, qualifiers in the States where the sort of the, the media attention was taken away from the winner and focused on other things. Do you sort of think that, I'm probably overthinking that or do you think that how do you think sort of diversity is sort of still covered 
within the media? So it's an interesting question because you can look at it from a number of different angles. I, I think there is a diversity angle that you could focus on. On the flip side, trying to be as objective as, as possible when someone like Koskai has the race won with a good amount of running still to go. I think she broke away like 30, 35 K or so and, and was solo the rest of the way. And it became clear no one was going to catch her. And she wasn't going to break a world record, even though she still did run a very fast time. I mean, it all like that's almost like it's kind of boring to watch. Like you're like, what's you know, what's going to happen here? I'm just going to watch her run here for, you know, the next like 30 minutes with no one else in sight. And she's going to run, you know, a, a fairly fast time, but nothing that is record breaking or earth shattering where behind her that race for second place three minutes back. I mean, there was a there was just more drama there. I mean, you've got you know the reigning you've got the reigning world champion in Ruth um, Cheptengedich who is just falling apart uh, in the last five k of the race. I mean, she is just slowing and slowing and slowing. And you've got Sarah Hall behind her who didn't even have her in sight for the longest time, and she's charging. And they come into that you know last four hundred five hundred meters of the the race or so, and there's drama and you're watching that. And the question is, can Ruth hold her off? Is Sarah going to catch her? If she comes even with her, is Ruth going to have a response for that? And it's just, it makes for better. I mean, not that TV is everyone's biggest medium now, but it it makes for better watching, whether it's on TV or whether it's a, a minute clip on social media than watching someone like Koske who has dominated the marathon for the last few years already has the world record, you know, one in a fast, but not, you know, very memorable time for a lot of people. Like you could, you could watch that and people are like, well, what am I watching? I'm just watching this. I'm just watching this woman run sub two nineteen on her own and no one challenging her versus, Oh, we've got an actual like race here. Like we've got a battle. Like this is what makes athletics exciting. This is why racing is the most like, primordial form of competition that that there is it's you know not in this case first of the finish line wins but in this case like first of those two to the finish line is going to be second rather than than third and it was just it was just more exciting you know i think it i think that i think in this particular instance it was just it was just more it was just more exciting given that the the race itself was already over for you know for first place um so i i i don't think it necessarily shared too many parallels with the U.S. Olympic trials uh, women's race and how that one ended up finishing from my standpoint. Okay. I think when you look back at it, it's a story side. So you can look at it from the head or the heart and the head would be like, you know, Bridget won. She's an incredible champion. She's won mm-hmm. countless other races beforehand, world record holder. So you'd go that side, but then the heart would say, "Yep, yeah, okay, Sarah Hall, that's an incredible finish, and no one's taken away from it. That kick was just phenomenal towards the end. I mean, considering that the year that she's had, and to you know do a PR thirty-seven, the marathon and half marathon distance, considering the disappointment she's had this year, it's just incredible to watch. And I don't want to take away from that, but I still kind of feel that I think Bridget's sort of personality or the way that she's perceived or represented didn't really get the same sort of coverage and I sort of feel yes there's a human story to to Sarah's journey which you shouldn't take away from but I feel that 
as a champion, she still had to run in that those really crappy conditions and still had to do a decent time to pull away. And it might be boring, but she got the job done. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm blown. Away. What I was most blown away with uh, in in Bridges Race, and I I wrote about this in my my newsletter this week. I mean, she ran two eighteen fifty seven, which if you're running sub two nineteen as a female, even if you've run two fourteen like she has, like that's really fast, and especially when you've done it largely solo. And then one of her quotes after the race was, she says, "Due to Corona, we have not prepared well." So you're like. This woman just ran two eighteen fifty seven, and she doesn't even think she prepared very well, um, which is which is super interesting to me. But I do think, and I've worked in media as well, and and this is a long standing issue with with major marathons and a lot of the East African runners with a with an American media or even just an English speaking media. I'm not saying this is right, but this is what happens. Um, You've got someone who who wins the race, and if they can't because either English is not their native language, they're just a shy person. They can't really, you know, art, articulate how they were really feeling, or you know what what had happened during the race. the The media is going to go look for someone who is going to get people to click on their article or to watch their video. Again, I'm not saying that's I'm not saying that's right, but that happens that happens a lot. And I think there was definitely a lot of that here. Um, but to your point with the head and the heart, like our media world today is, is a very emotional space. Um, whether it's in sport, whether it's in politics, um, other things that are happening around the world. And I, I don't think that's necessarily great, but in sport, it's like emotion is the, is the prevailing thing. And I think there was just, I think there was just so much more, you know, emotion and excitement in that finish than there was, you know, Bridget's. And it doesn't mean like she shouldn't get the attention. I mean, I, I felt like she, she, she was definitely the talk of the town in Chicago when she broke the world record last fall and ran, you know, and ran two fourteen. I think here people were looking for something that was exciting and a sprint finish just happened to be more exciting than a two eighteen fifty seven in this case, given that it was a you know a three minute gap between the two. But I mean, I I totally appreciate where you know you're coming from, and I'm not saying I'm not saying that you're wrong, but that's that's sort of how I saw it. I saw it as like they're they're focusing more on on the exciting finish, and it probably didn't help Bridget that she is is a pretty shy person, and it's hard to really it, it's hard for a lot of the media to tell a really interesting story especially like in that you know in that particular moment but i mean it's not to take anything away from her effort at all yeah it's like it's almost like what will get the most attention from the people watching and you know on one hand you've got like athletes that are completely so putting these athletes as one side that are kind of ruthless dedicated probably kind of seem quite unemotional yeah um and they probably don't get the same sort of coverage and um, and kind of um, respect maybe from the public because they can't really relate to someone that's kind of like communicates better, mm-hmm. has that sort of that sort of story that they can sort of really relate to. Um, yeah. But no, I think it's interesting. I mean, it's it it kind of is what it is, really, isn't it? Unfortunately. Right. Well, to flip it around to the men's race, right? That was an exciting finish for the win. I mean, you had three guys. You had Shuri Katata, you had Sisei Lemma, and I, I can't remember the second place finish. Vincent. Um, 
Kipchunga from Kenya. So so it was it was Shura, Vincent, and Sase one, two, three seconds apart. Um, you know they were full on sprint finish to the tape. Four seconds between first and third. Most exciting finish of the day, either race, I think, for me. And the the story of, of that race, of the men's race, was Kipchoge didn't win. Now, I understand that because Kipchoge is the greatest marathoner of all time. He's only lost one other race. But, I mean, he he had a, you know, he had a flat day. He was, what, uh sixth eighth i can't remember what it was 206 and change and most of the stories about the men's race a lot of the attention was on that and not the excitement of the finish or the fact that you know katata who if you remember last year he had this tweet or said after the race it definitely got some attention where he said i i didn't eat breakfast i only had a few pieces of fruit um so my my stomach was like touching my back and uh that's why i i couldn't win today but i'll be back next year and i'll win and he did i mean i think that's a fascinating story and it got like no attention because kipchoge was in the race and he had this like really you know rare day um and then you compare the two like the the sarah hall finish i think from my perspective got more attention than the excitement of the men's finish overall, which it's good to see the women's race getting attention, but you, you do have to ask, you're like, well, why is that? Well, here in the States, it's because Sarah's American and people know who she is and more people are going to read that story or watch that finish than, than the men's race. And it's, uh, it's, I've been in this, in this racket for a while and it's deeply frustrating um, because I know there are people who want to be as objective as possible and look at it and say, Hey, this was the story of the day. This is what we are going to lead with, but it doesn't always, it doesn't always work out that, that way. And I certainly saw that coming off London this past weekend in both races. Yeah. I mean, humans are humans and biases come in and whatnot. And we go for what works and what doesn't work. So it's, it's a kind of an imperfect situation really. I mean, someone would be annoyed or some will say that this should have been covered more or not covered more, but it is what it is, I think. Yeah, but that shouldn't be an acceptable answer. I mean, if we want to go a little further down this road, you brought up the U.S. Olympic trials. That was really bad, and I'm glad that Alephine Tuliamuk, who won the women's race, eventually spoke out about it because she won that race. It was her first major victory. She's long been tearing up the roads here in the u.s i mean i think that was that was like her i don't know 15th national title 18th national title or, or something like yeah. that and all of the attention afterward was on molly seidel not molly seidel's fault she ran a great race for herself to get on the olympic team and she has an interesting story in her own right but alephine does too and she deserves the attention because she won the damn race (laughs) like you know she definitely she won the damn race um and it was just it it was really upsetting to see a lot of the mainstream coverage here in the u.s and even some of the running outlets uh almost ignoring that story but i think some people do feel like the same sort of parallels between this and london to a certain extent yeah, I I could I can see that. I I mean the stakes are different, right? I mean the yeah. the Olympic trials versus win and making the Olympic team, you know, versus a a major marathon which has been postponed is in this you know unique you know unique format. Um, I yeah I I don't think we're comparing apples to 
to apples here, but I mean, you could, you could make strong arguments. I think, I, I think either way, I, I see where you're coming from. Um, I just, I saw this particular instance differently for myself, for myself as a, as a fan of, as a fan of the sport and as someone who I, I hope takes as, as balanced of an approach as possible from like a pure interest and excitement standpoint. Like once, once Bridget was gone, Bridget was gone. I mean, unless she completely blew up. Um, I I mean, you knew she was going to win the race. You knew she wasn't going to break a world record. And then you're curious, like what's going on behind her. And there was, I think there was just more interesting stuff going on behind her from a, you know, in the moment watching it standpoint, you know, versus, uh, versus just watching her run away with it over the final, you know, 8K or so. Yeah, I mean, not not taking away from what Sarah did, I mean, that was an incredible finish. And I think sometimes in my head, like, when you're thinking you're doing, like, a kick finish or sprinting, that's how you look. But in reality, it's completely different. Yeah. But hers was just absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I think, too, I mean, uh, imagery is is really powerful. So the clip that's been going around is that final bend, right? So Ruth had already made the turn. She's in the final stretch. She's got less than a hundred meters to go. She's going to finish second. And then all of a sudden Sarah pops onto your screen and she's charging. And then you're like, Oh, well this just got really interesting, (laughs) you know, really, you know, really quickly. And for the people who who didn't watch the entire race and how it was unfolding and knew that that was, you know, a possibility. I mean, even the announcers were basically saying, like, this race is pretty much determined. Uh, Bridget already won. Ruth's going to be second. Looks like Sarah Hall is going to be third. And then she was able to, you know, close that gap. But the the image that most people are seeing after the fact is just that, OK, here's Ruth. Oh, here's Sarah coming off of the turn. Um, and it makes for good watching. So, yeah, there's so much to that race. I mean, there's Piers Bush is running by itself. I mean, the two groups, the lead group and the second group, were sort of they bunch together, and it was just so many factors in that race. But I feel like we we could speak about that race for an eternity. So I'm gonna kind of just park that to one sure. side. <laughs> one of the things I really like is that you did this article and you think you republished it recently because it it's still applicable. The seven habits of highly effective runners. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, item number three, you know, is essential like consistency. Because people have been asking me like about the sub three time, like what's the killer workout? And I'm like, there is no killer workout. It's just mm-hmm. being consistent. In this new COVID world and the way that everything's kind of changing and developing, would you amend that article? Or would you add anything to the seven and make an eight or uh, moving forward? That's a good question. Um, I would. And sadly, I don't know exactly what what that amendment would be at at this point i mean i think everything that i wrote in there still stands um i would you know i would i would go in and almost say that i double down on number two which is the enjoyment of the process because as runners, competitive runners, so many of us are outcome oriented. And oftentimes that outcome is a race, something that we can quantify. Maybe for other people, it's weight loss. Maybe it's a certain number of mileage per week. And we are in this time where some opportunities are starting to pop up in different places or people have created their own opportunities because they've, they've needed that 
but more so than ever as a runner with no real outlet per se to show your fitness. Um, and people have, I mean, you just did, I mean, you just ran, you were able to run a marathon and break three hours for the first time, which is amazing. Um, but I'm sure that the past six or seven months navigating all the uncertainty of races and stuff being canceled hasn't been easy. So you have to almost remind yourself that, Hey, even if I don't get this opportunity this year, I've really got to, I've really got to not tie my self-worth up in some result like that. Breaking three hours is going to make me feel like all that much better. Like the real joy is in the process and is in learning more about myself and pushing my body in different ways, which we've still been able to do. So I, I would probably double down on the, the process point more so than, than any of the others, because I have seen a lot of runners, whether I coach them or they're friends of mine who really are completely out of sorts with no races on the calendar. They're used to running two marathons a year, or they have a destination event that they always go to, whatever it may be. And they, you know, they had a hard time just, just getting through these last few months, getting excited to run, getting excited to go out and do workouts because on, on some level, I think they felt like they, you know, they, they needed that. That's why they run. And, and for some people they, they do, but it's, it's, got to be more than that. Um, you know, I really think this, this enjoyment and this embracing of the the process of, of being a runner, like it never ends. It should never end. I hope it doesn't end. I mean, I hope once you run your marathon in 12 weeks or in six months or whenever it may be that you're going to, that you're going to stick with it. You're going to work toward, you know, you're going to work towards something else and you're going to have days where you accomplish a goal and you feel really good about yourself. And that's amazing. You're also going to have days where you're just down in the dumps and you swing and you miss, uh, but you've got to get up and put your shoes on again and, and go out. And I, I think being able to, to, to really embrace that over these past several months and, and keep yourself moving forward, even when you don't have this, this tangible thing that you can latch yourself onto, uh, is, is something that's really, really valuable. I think you've hit the nail on the head because it's been about embracing it. And for me, when London was postponed and we all knew it was going to happen, it was that there's that kind of feeling of just like, what do you do next? And you're faced with this sort of thing of this uncertainty. I know training is uncertain to certain degree anyways, even with races, but with no races, it's, it creates extra uncertainty. And you're in this sort of, for me, my training was, I was in this holding pattern. It's almost like a, a plane mm -hmm. just sort of circling, waiting to land. And you're just sort of hovering in this sort of space because you don't want to go too deep into marathon training and burn out. But then you, you, you don't want to take the foot off the gas as well. So I was in this kind of weird place. And then this race came up towards the end of the year, took it. And even running that was strange because we were in sort of different sort of stages of running and you're running by yourself for large periods. You can't settle into a group. So that was interesting in itself. But I think for me, like this is what you said, for me, the turning point was embracing the uncertainty and that really helped. Yeah. And I think along with that, appreciating the little things along the way, the enjoyment of an easy run, the, yeah. the, the real privilege of being able to go outside and, and move your body as fundamental as that sounds. I know friends who live in Spain and were stuck inside for 40 some odd days straight and yeah. couldn't, couldn't leave their their balcony uh and their 
only form of exercise if they were fortunate enough to to have one would be to like get on a bike trainer and and start pedaling and and for me i mean it's just you know it's reminding yourself if if you live in a place where you are able to get outside you can go you know more than a kilometer from your house or 5k from your house uh wherever it could be like just just to just to bring yourself back to center and, and appreciate that um because i i think it's easy to take that for granted and to lose sight of it when we're in normal times and you're like, okay, yep, I got my spring marathon. I got my fall marathon. I've got the 12 week plan. I go to the track on Tuesday, I do tempo on Thursday. I run long on Saturday. Um, you know, that, that sort of thing. And, and here it's just, you're almost like back to what we've been talking about throughout this entire episode, paying attention to, to different things, like the fact that you can get out and run, or if you're, if you are doing workouts, like, even if it's not necessarily building up to a race that you're healthy enough to push your body, you know, in that way, if you've gotten to a point where you're comfortable running in small groups, which I have been just the last couple of months, but I went, I think I went four or five months straight almost without running with a, another person, really being able to cherish that time, the, those miles that you get to share, you know, with, with other people, because that's what it's really about. I mean, the races are going to come back. Um, some of them are going to go well, some of them are, are not, but what it's really about is this lifestyle. I mean, it's the name of your podcast, a runner's life, this lifestyle of being a runner, this process that, a lot of people apply to an end goal or to a race, the process never ends. We're always in the process, even when we're, we're racing. Once we get past it, we're right back into the process. But I think we can lose sight of that and we can lose an appreciation for it if we're not careful. So that's the one that I would, that I would amend or, or maybe double down on. I don't know what I would add at this point, but I'll give that a little more thought uh, this weekend. I think that gratitude part is so essential. It's almost like you were in my head because I, I had a couple of runs this year where you sort of feel that way. You're kind of like feeling a bit wretched about a certain run and you think back, like you're saying, there's people that can't run because of lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, even thinking about the situation that you're in recently with the fires, there's times that you guys couldn't run. So I was like, at least I can get out and run. I can be grateful for that. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the fires. I had this almost seven month long running streak, which is the longest I've had in quite a few years that started at the beginning of the pandemic. And I wasn't setting out to run for that long, but because everything is so routine now and I'm not traveling and I'm not driving to the track to go coach workouts. I mean, after taking the dog out every morning, the first thing I would do is run. And I just did this every day. And I felt grateful that I could do that every day. And we got to a point just a few weeks ago where because of the fires here in California, the air quality was, was horrendous. It was unhealthy to be outside and we don't have a treadmill here and you can't even go to a gym and get a one week free pass to use the treadmills because all the gyms are closed due to, due to COVID. And I just had to bite the bullet and take six days off of running because it was unsafe to go outside. And I think I had been doing a good job leading up to that of practicing gratitude. And we can get into that here in a bit and being able to go outside and run and move my body. But that experience of not being able to go outside for six straight days because it was unsafe to do so really helped me further 
appreciate the the opportunity when I do have it to lace up my shoes and to go out and to breathe the fresh air. And it's also a reminder that this is a temporary state here for us. Like we will eventually be out of fire season. There are people in other areas of the world who face us on a more regular basis. And it just helps to, to keep things in perspective or put things back in perspective, at least for me. But I think that's important for all of us, regardless of, of who we are, where we live. And talking of gratitude, I mean, what sort of tips could you give other people just when you're not feeling like, what you know, feeling gra- grateful, you're just feeling a bit wretched with what's happening with the day or just 2020 or something like that? I mean, how do you sort of bring yourself back into that that that, that moment to be aware, but then sort of take the, the next best step? It's as simple as reminding yourself there's always something to be grateful for. It takes work to uncover that sometimes because it's not always obvious and you've got to spend some time in your head and figure out what that is for you, but write it down and really spend some time thinking about it. Speaking for myself personally, with everything that's gone on since March between COVID fires, uh, the political climate here in the U S and I think when I was on social media, social media platforms were amplifying a lot of those things for me and really playing with my emotions in a way that wasn't making me happy, was making me very distressed and and sad. And when you're feeling that way about one thing in particular, it's going to spill over into other areas of, of your life. So if I was feeling distressed about the political climate here in the US and then I would go out and run. I'd carry that with me into the run and it would take away from some of the the enjoyment of that. But what I've been trying to do and this isn't a switch that I was able to flip and all of a sudden things were better. It's a process like everything else. I have been trying to lead with gratitude and every day I will sit down with just my little yellow notebook, little notepad that I have here right in front of me. And I'll write down three to five things that I'm grateful for. I don't share them with anybody. They're not, they're certainly not getting posted to social media. Uh, in my case, you can do that if, if you want, but I found like taking the time to think about those things and then taking the time to actually extract them from my head and put them onto a piece of paper and look at that and think about that, whether it's being, you know, grateful for a healthy relationship with my wife, that I have a dog who's always happy to see me, that we have a good air day and I can get outside and run hard for the first time in a week, that I have a roof over my head, like whatever it whatever it may be, um, it's it's a it's provided me with a healthy dose of of perspective. And it doesn't mean that you can't feel bad. I mean, I'll still feel bad about things. Things will still get under my skin. Things will still, you know, aggravate me or or make me sad, especially if I look at a, a news headline. But if I take the the time and put the effort in to finding things to to be grateful for, and sometimes, if, especially if it's a person, I will reach out to them and say, "Hey, I'm grateful to have you in my life." Um, that can be a really powerful thing. It can really switch your mood, especially if you go, I mean, I found for me, like I, I like to generally be in a good mood when I'm out running. And sometimes just the act of being able to go out and run itself will put me in a good mood. But I always try to practice some sort of um, bit of gratitude before I go out to run. And I will oftentimes think about that during the run and it helps the miles go by, but it also just puts me in a much better mood. So those are those are some of my my probably best tips that I could give 
yeah, I think the the thing where you do something for others definitely has a massive impact for you, and I think that's really nice. And it's like it's like the generosity quote again. I can sort of see how that sort of ties into it. And even when you spoke about um, writing, you know, the things that you're grateful for, not sharing them, I think that's right because at some point you have to protect your own peace. You don't mm-hmm. have to share everything. Yeah, and we do live in a world of oversharing. I think some of these social media platforms encourage oversharing. As humans, I think we are to some degree inherently nosy. So when people are posting things that you want to see, you know, you sort of want to see what's going on. Um, But I think there's something to be said for keeping things close to the vest and um, just enjoying things for their own sake and not telling the entire world about it. I agree. And one thing that you've been very open about um, online is about your experiences with uh, disordered eating. And basically for men and competitive athletes, I mean, this is something that is actually quite common, but doesn't get spoken about. There's a guy called Freddie Flintoff and he's a cricketer and he was on BBC and he was talking about it. And I was listening to another podcast with an elite athlete and he was talking about his experiences. And for me, when you listen to it, I think there's sometimes a denial of what what is actually an issue and where it goes from being very careful to experimenting to being a real problem I mean in your experiences and for the athletes that you coach I mean what kind of advice would you give them to sort of say this is kind of the point where it's becoming a problem yeah it's that's a that's a loaded question um but I, you know, I do think it's important to educate yourself as an athlete and certainly as a coach, if you're working with athletes about these things, um, meaning disordered eating, but things related to it, like body composition, nutrition, um, nutrition for nutrition for training, the psychological aspect of it. I mean, I would say on a very fundamental level, if your thoughts are constantly consumed by food and weight in such a way that it's causing you angst, that is not a healthy thing. Um, that means you're, you're very focused on it. You're obsessed with it. And it's, I mean, I don't think obsession can be healthy. That is not, that's certainly not a healthy obsession. And I can only speak for myself. Um, and, and my story, but with, with the athletes that I coach, I'm very open with them about everything. And they know they can be open with me about anything that they're struggling with. And I am not one who tends to pry if I am working with an athlete or even if it's just a close friend of mine that I don't necessarily coach. And I can see them struggling or behaving in a way that sets off alarm bells in my head, I'll initiate a conversation. Just ask them if there's something that they want to talk about. Um, But I will also have athletes and have had athletes that I work with come to me as, as their coach and say, hey, I've really been struggling with the fact that I can't you know, get to a race weight, which is not something we ever talk about. Um, but they've, you know, they have this idea of where they should be, you know, in terms of that and, and we'll talk through it. And sometimes it, it is worth talking about. Um, it's always worth talking about, but it's worth talking about in such a way as it relates to performance, because there is a, a definite as, as endurance athletes, as runners, there is a definite connection there between, you know, 
body weight and your ability to, you know, to perform, but it's a very fine line between like what's, what's a healthy relationship and trying to get to, you know, a healthy race weight versus where it becomes so all consuming and obsessive that it's not even about the performance anymore. And you just end up going down, you know, this, this spiral staircase of chasing numbers on a scale. I guess it's that sort of conscious decision to restrict. That's, that's when it's kind of gets to the point of like being a problem. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I think as, as athletes, as human beings in general, we should not be depriving ourselves of nourishment and food is a form of, of nourishment. It's also a form of fuel. Um, doesn't mean you can eat all the things all the time. I mean, that's a, a different problem unto itself, but 99.9% of the time as a endurance athlete who is training hard, there usually is not a reason to restrict calories or restrict intake. Okay. And I'm just sort of thinking, where do you sort of think, maybe even your experience, because you can't speak for other people, the the feeling to try and control that side came from? It's different for everyone. I mean, for me, it was something that I, I could control. Um, and it became a game. So I could control what went into my body every day. And there's, there's something on the psychological side of things like, a you know, a, about that. Um, and I don't know exactly how it may be related to other things going on in my life, but it was, it was this one thing that I felt like I had control over and you want to feel like you have some level of autonomy over different areas of your life. But for me, like it was this, this sort of like unhealthy control. And then it got to a point where I thought I needed to be a certain weight. And then you, you get there. And I think this will resonate with a lot of runners. You're like, well, if I was just like a little bit lighter, maybe I could go just like a little bit faster. And if I was a lot a bit lighter, then I could go a lot faster. Um, and then that ends up being like a very, you know, dangerous game to play. Okay. And I guess when was the point that you acknowledged or you became aware that this was the situation it was and do you just do you notice any sort of triggers or thought processes that sort of lead that back to that sort of that sort of stage or so i i think it's important to give a little context in my particular situation so i graduated from college in 2004 i was an all-american in cross country i was national qualifier on the track i wanted to run professionally but i wasn't fast enough to to land a contract but i thought if i could really work hard at it over the next two to four years that possibly i could get into one of the better training groups here in the u.s like a hanson's brooks at the time was kind of the gold standard that i was that i was shooting for and i am a bit of a type a personality a bit of a perfectionist and you start looking at all of these different areas of performance that you could improve upon. And I'm looking at other guys who are my height, five feet, eight inches, and I'm looking at their weights on whatever roster I could find. And I got it into my head that I was too heavy and that if I lost weight and I was more along the lines of a Dathan Ritzenhine, it's not his fault, but that's just who was the best in the game at the time. He and I are about the same age. If I could get to about his size and maybe I could be 
you know, maybe not as fast as him, but I could be a lot faster than I, than I am now. And I think you can probably start to put the pieces together and realize how that's a very dangerous game to play. But at first it is under the guise of, well, it's always under the guise of performance, but you're like, okay, well, if I can lose a few more pounds, then, you know, it makes sense that I'll run a little bit faster, everything else being equal. And at some point it became all consuming and it didn't take long for it to get to that point. I mean, I, I graduated from college. I was five, eight, I weighed 141 pounds. Uh, six months later, I weighed about 124 pounds. So I lost like quite a bit of weight in a very short period of time. And for people who do need to lose a little bit of weight or are trying, like there are safe ways to do it. I didn't go about it in a very safe way. I tend to be, I tend to be a person of extremes, um, for better or worse. And, and I went from, you know, eating a very normal diet, not restricting myself of anything to limiting my intake to a thousand calories a day, oftentimes much less than that while training a hundred plus miles a week. And you can see how those numbers don't add up. And my, my body broke on me, um, over time because of the, you know, because of the choices that I made, but I would say, you know, within a, within a few months of making the decision that I needed to lose a few pounds, it became more about losing the pounds than whatever impact that had on my performance. If that makes, if that makes sense. And I started weighing myself more often. So I was doing that obsessively. I was tracking every morsel that I put into my body and I was scrutinizing those things more than I was the numbers in my training log. And, and that, I, I mean, I, I was aware of it, um, but I also couldn't get myself out of it, but then you're ashamed to talk about it. So you keep the secret to yourself and it's just this, you know, really, you know, really, really hard place to be. And you don't think that anyone notices, but people do notice and they're too afraid to speak up. Uh, and I was, you know, I was in that place for, you know, for quite a while. Um, and, and I've thankful that I was able to, you know, to get out of it. And I, I actually had a friend, uh, who had struggled with some disordered eating of, of her own, you know, call me out because she recognized those, you know, those patterns in me. Um, and, you know, I remember, feeling like on one hand, like the sense of dread that, oh my God, I've been uncovered. And on the opposite side, like the sense of relief, because I finally felt like, okay, this is a step that I need to take in order to get past this, this point of my life. From the outside looking in, you know, at that sort of level, you've got people talk about talent and hard work. It kind of doesn't really matter because everyone's kind of at that same level doing, doing the work. And I guess everyone's trying to find that competitive advantage, which is, I guess, to give context to what we're talking about, kind of does make sense of why, if you're that type of personality, why that would be an option. Um, but I think it's it's so refreshing to sort of hear, um, especially for men that may not think it's a problem for them, or um, because I think it's not just it's almost assumed like it's just something solely down to women, but it's not. No, not at all. It's a very taboo topic amongst men in particular. I mean, some women too, though it's certainly more widely talked about amongst women or in relation to, to women. But that's a big part of why I wanted to be open about sharing my story, because I know when I was going through it, 
behind the scenes, I was looking for whatever I could find online, mostly about eating disorders amongst male distant runners. And there were a few things that I found and I felt like I was a character in those stories that were being told. And I knew that sharing my own story and when I did share the story, I had a little bit of a platform. First time I shared it was on a personal blog. And then I reshared my story when I was at competitor, which was a much bigger platform. I wanted people to read it because I was looking for that sort of stuff when I was going through it. And I knew just from being around distance running that a lot of other men were in a similar place or struggling in a similar way and didn't know where to turn or felt like they were all alone. So that's the thing. When you're going through something like this, you really feel like you're all alone. But if you can hear stories from other people who have been through a similar experience to you, it doesn't make you feel quite as alone. And you might feel more compelled to reach out to that person. Anytime I've written about this, anytime I've talked about it on a podcast, same goes for for this show. I encourage people like reach out to me. I might not be able to help you directly. That's beyond my qualifications in a lot of ways, but I can point you in the right direction um, to some other resources that you can check out for yourself so you can get the help that you need. But yeah, it's, it's still, it's being talked about more and more. And I always love seeing someone who has a voice come out and share their own experience, because that's a really powerful and impactful thing for, for someone who is, is listening to that or, or reading your story and can help them get the help that they need. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And I totally agree with what you're saying. And I'm just thinking in your role, obviously working in journalism previously and still now working as a coach, as an athlete, being interviewed, doing the interviews yourself, you've been asked a lot of questions, probably a lot that you've been, you've probably answered that you sort of get used to sort of having a good stock answer to potentially. Has there been a question that you've been wanting to be asked, but you've not been asked just yet? That one. That's a great question. Um, no one's ever asked me that before. So if you give me a moment to think about it. Um, I have thought about if I were to ever interview myself, what questions would I ask? And the reason I would ask them is so that as I'm answering it, I can better understand something about myself that maybe wasn't so obvious or that I hadn't spent much time thinking about or talked about before. And I think in all the times that I have been interviewed on podcasts or in articles, I've been asked about disordered eating. I've been asked about how I got into running, coaching, you know, podcasting, writing. And you're right. There are some, I don't want to call them stock answers, but answers that you We'll hear this, some version of the same answer um, time and time again. I've never really been asked outside of maybe like one interview, and this only touched on one part of it, um, the, the impact and the influence that my family has had on my life and how I approach it now. And 
I don't know how people would, <laughs> uh, you know, would know to, to ask that sort of stuff. I mean, you'd have to go pretty, you know, pretty deep in the research, but my dad immigrated here to the U S from Italy when he was 12 years old with, you know, with my grandparents, um, and didn't speak the language and had a very hard time, uh, you know, settling into to his new country, but they, you know, they made it through. And then my mom was one of eight kids, a big Irish Catholic family. And I grew up in this kind of Italian, uh, Italian Irish household, which is not super uncommon on the East coast of, of the U S. Uh, but I spent a lot of time around my family as a kid and they're, they're very important to me. And I'm realizing now at 38 years old, just how much influence my family has had on my life and the way that I approach it and the way I approach relationships and the way that I approach my work, despite the fact that all the things that I I'm doing, like just running competitively, no, no one in my family ever did that. Um, podcasting or being some sort of a radio host or someone in the, in the media, no one in my family ever did that. Um, coaching, no one in my family ever did anything, anything like that. But the way that I, I approach those things is very much influenced by, you know, my, my upbringing, my parents, my grandparents, uh, the environment that I grew up in. And then fast forwarding, you know, several years, just other, other events, mostly related to my family passing of my grandfather, who was my best friend when I was a freshman in college, the sudden passing of my mom when I was 26 years old uh, from a brain aneurysm, the recent passing of my grandmother, who is 92 years old. Like These are the most impactful people in my life and have had more influence on who I am today and how I approach the world, how I approach my work, how I approach my relationships than anything else. And I don't think I've ever really talked at length minus one interview I did with Travis McKenzie of inner voice. Uh, and he did ask me about my mom's sudden passing and we got into that a little bit, but other than that, and I, I have written about these things in places, whether it's in my newsletter or when I had an Instagram, uh, account on my Instagram feed, but I've never talked much about at length in a podcast before what is sort of prompted that thought of a reflection regarding the different family members and just at this particular point do you think i think because i'm thinking about a lot of these things right now especially given the the state of the world and the things we can and can't do i haven't seen my family since january when my my grandmother passed and we were all together for her for her services i was supposed to go home to the east coast a couple of months ago we had to cancel that i don't think we're going to travel for the holidays this year because of the covid situation and it's you know for me uh you know that's those are the people that that matter you know, that matter most. Um, and like, because we haven't been able to get together, I've just been thinking more about the impact that they've had on me and been doing what I can to stay in more frequent touch with my dad, with my sisters, with my brother, um, who I, I don't know when I'm going to, 
when I'm going to see them again. Whereas in the past, I knew that these were impactful people and they were important to me, but you almost take for granted their presence in your life and the, the impact and the influence that they've had on you. So I've, I've been doing a lot of this kind of work on my own um, over the past few months and even more recently, specifically these past few weeks that I haven't been on social media and thinking more about the, the people and the pursuits that are most important to me and how I want to put my energy into those things moving forward and how I want to give them more of, you know, more of my attention. And I'm just, yeah, I'm just realizing or reminded is maybe a, a better word of the things that have shaped me. And I think it's easy to lose sight of that when the the world is going by at a million miles an hour. It kind of reminds me of what we spoke about earlier with running and especially during this time, you go back to gratitude, especially in the tough moments. Mm-hmm. And I can totally understand where you're coming from. And I think so many other people can relate to it, especially now not being able to see family members. And now it just brings to home that how important our families are to us when we can't, you know, things we took for granted that, you know, you just go and see your, your grandmother, but now you're worried about the COVID and, and you don't want to sort of put her under sort of uh, pressure. So I think so many people can relate to that. Yeah. And I mean, for me, this is something I've, I've thought about at different points of the, of the last several years. I mean, sort of rewind a bit. I lost my mom in 2008, suddenly to a brain aneurysm, no warning at all. And that's a devastating thing to go through. It's devastating to watch your father lose the love of his life. The, you know, the mother of his children, um, to see my grandfather lose his daughter, um, my aunts lose their sister, my siblings lose their their parent. Like that, that's a that's a life changing, life shaping event, and it had an impact on me at the time. I mean, it really shaped my perspective. Twelve years ago, when she passed, and helped me to have you know more gratitude for the the people in my life. And you lose sight of that from from time to time when things get busy or you get caught up in the inertia of everything. But what I wouldn't give to have even one more minute with my mom if I knew she was on her way out to to say something to her, have her say something to me. And why that's important is if I fast forward to this past January when I lost my Nana, who is 92 years old, um, one of, I mean, my grandfather, my, my grandmother, my, my dad, like those are the and my mom, like those are the four most, you know, important, impactful people in my life. And now I've, I've lost three of them. Um, and one of them suddenly, you know, my, my grandfather, uh, didn't, we didn't necessarily lose him suddenly, but I mean, certainly didn't get to, you know, have any real closure to, to that passing. But when my, when my grandmother passed in January, um, it was due to a stroke, but when I was home, in December of last year for, for Christmas, I spent a lot of time with her and I'd been home several times over the last few years. And it's always my first stop when I would get there, my last stop before I would leave. And there was always this unspoken understanding that because of her age and because of the distance apart that we were, it could be the last time we see each other, even though we talked on the phone every Sunday. And 
every time I went home and I saw her and the last time was this past Christmas, I have never been more present for anything in my entire life. And phone would go away. It would usually just be myself, my wife, Christine, and her. And we would spend several hours together just enjoying each other's company and telling stories. And I remember the last couple of times, like asking her for, you know, for life advice, that sort of thing. And and when we would say goodbye, like we would never say it uh, in, in so many words, but there were always tears shed because we knew like, okay, even though we might talk next Sunday, this might be the last time that I see you. And I, and I got that with her. Uh, and it was, you know, as sad as it is not to have her physically present in my life anymore, having had that moment of, of closure and being able to really just really cherish those last several um, times that we had together in person is, is something that I'll, I'll never forget and I'll never take for granted, but have been shaped by, you know, previous experiences that, that I have. And I'm not sure that if I hadn't lost my mom so suddenly and been through some of these, these other things that I, I would have been so deliberate about doing that, if that makes sense. Yeah, because I think it kind of shakes the world that you're in and makes you more aware of things that aren't always permanent. Not that saying that you had that idea right, before, right. Uh, but it definitely makes you more grateful and mindful to maintain those relationships from what you're saying. Yeah, and and for me, so back to back to your question, um, the reason. I, I mean, I haven't talked about these things and not that there are obvious questions to ask, but I think oftentimes, and this is one of my biggest frustrations with some podcasts that I listen to or interviews that I read, the obvious questions always get asked. Um, and that's something I, I try in, in my show not to do. I mean, sometimes you have to, um, to set up a, a question and maybe get a few levels deeper, but I try not to ask the obvious questions because you really, you know, especially with, with more popular guests, like you've read the same thing or heard the same thing over and over, but the real good stuff is when you, is when you get deep and you understand what makes them tick. And I, and I think for me, I, you know, I like talking about coaching. I like talking about podcasting. I like talking about writing and my journey into, you know, into those things. But I'm, I'm just at this like point of my life where not that I don't want to like talk about those things, but the things that I think are most interesting and where I'm, gaining some of the most insight now and are, are most important are, you know, are these things that are very, you know, are very personal that have really shaped me. And I think, you know, back, I mean, you asked us about, you know, Killian, you know, earlier. Um, and I think this, this applies to anyone. It's never like one or two or, or three things, um, that led you to where you are today. I mean, all we are is the, the sum of experiences that we've had and people that we've met along the way. And I haven't, and I haven't talked, and I haven't talked uh, a lot about that in many other places. I feel like I want to go much deeper, but then I'm also mindful of time as well. <laughs> so, it's later for you than it is I for know. me. I've got a few yeah. more minutes if if you still want to if you still want to chat. I'm happy to. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask one final question. Sure. Before we wrap up, if you could give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? I'm going to combine two things into one piece of advice, but be patient and be grateful. When I was younger, I took a lot of things for granted. And as I've gotten older, 
I've taken less things for granted. And I think it's important to recognize what you have, what you've been blessed with, what you've had the opportunity to experience and to, to show gratitude for that. I mean, sometimes that is going to be just writing it down on a piece of paper, but if it's a person, especially if it's a person, reach out to them and, and let them know that you're grateful to have them in, in your life. Uh, and then combine that with, uh, be patient. When I was younger, I was anything but patient. I wanted everything yesterday. Uh, and I've, I've learned more often than not the hard way that good things take time. Good relationships take time. You want to be a better athlete. It's going to take time. You want to be a better writer, better podcaster. Um, better friend takes time. And it goes back to one of the things we talked about in, in this conversation. And that's whether it's running or something else, like this is all a process. Um, and processes, some are shorter than others, but this process of life takes time. So have patience and be grateful for the people you meet along the way because they shape you and they make all of this worthwhile. Thank you for sharing that. Mario, thanks for being a guest on the Runner's Life podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really enjoyed the conversation and grateful to call you a friend. And likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of A Runner's Life. If you found value in this episode and you want to support the show, please share with your community, post on your social media channels and encourage them to listen and subscribe. If you want to support my work directly, you can become a member on Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash a runner's life. If you want to get updates on the podcast or you want to see what I'm up to, you can follow me on Instagram at a runner's life underscore podcast and at the marathon markers. Your time is valuable. So thank you for spending your time listening to this episode of a runner's life podcast.